Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, let's go ahead and turn together in God's Word to Luke 20. We will look this morning together at verses 9 through 18. Again, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. It's not printed for you, saying the bulletin, but it should be up there on our screen, or you can turn, of course, in your own Bible as well. But we are continuing our journey through this latter half of Luke's gospel, picking up from where we left off last week. And looking here in verses 9 through 18 at a parable that Jesus tells. And so, if you would, hear this, the word of God. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. On our journey through Luke's gospel, we have looked at a number of parables already. In fact, Luke contains the largest amount of parables and some that are unique even only to his gospel. And some of those parables, as we have seen or if you have seen in other studies of yours or other readings, are cryptic. They are head scratchers. They require more careful investigation. But other parables are a bit more direct and straightforward, and this really is one of them. The original audience who would have been there that day around Jesus as he taught, and we today as modern hearers have little trouble discerning the characters in this story, in this teaching. How many times do you watch a movie or a TV show and you recognize an actor, right? And you're like, oh, I know I've seen him or her. I've seen them somewhere, but I can't, you know, you can't, it's on the tip of your tongue. You can't pin down exactly what the actor's name is. What did they play in that movie we saw a while ago? Who is that actor? Oh, I recognize him, but I just can't, I can't pin it down, right? We feel that kind of emotion sometimes with TVs or movies, shows or movies. Well, here, again, not really the case. The characters in this story are pretty recognizable, pretty easy to identify. The the vineyard owner here is God. The tenants 
are the people of Israel, particularly as we're seeing the religious elite or the religious leadership that Jesus continues to encounter with greater regularity as he journeys further into Jerusalem, as he journeys towards the cross. And the servants are the prophets that have been sent to Israel throughout her history. Those who here, as it's described in parabolic form, have been rejected who have been beaten, who have been killed even, who have been persecuted, who have been marginalized. John the Baptist actually being the last in that line. John the Baptist being the last of the quote-unquote kind of Old Testament, even though he's in the New Testament, Old Testament prophets. And of course then that paves the way then for the Son. The vineyard owner's son, Jesus, the final card played, if you will. The one here, again, in Luke's gospel, around whom these whirlwinds begin to swirl ever tighter. As Jesus, again, begins to march into the eye of the storm. He marches further into Jerusalem and he sets his face towards the cross. You see, Jesus, as he does so, again, does so with this dual nature. What we celebrate, again, at Christmas, at Advent, the incarnation, fully God, but fully man. You see, Jesus and his divinity is aware, even though he journeys in physical form, in human form. As he journeys towards the cross, he is aware in his divinity of where he stands, so to speak, in the story of redemption of what page he is on in the story of redemptive history and the winds begin to swirl ever tighter and he approaches again the eye of the storm of which again this parable begins to foreshadow. But I think the question for us this morning and the question today is how do we read this parable and how do we sort of capture the mood of it? Or maybe a better way to ask it is how do we read this parable and not just catch the, the cultural mood of that historical moment? How do we not just bind this parable to what was happening then in the first century? How does it not just capture, again, the mood or the moment of what Jesus himself was encountering in that moment of redemptive history? But how do we read it in a way that it also convicts us as well and and, and brings us to a level of compulsion towards certain things. Because if Jesus here is indicting sort of that historical moment, well, we can say, well, that just applies to, to what was happening then. But again, how do we read it with fresh eyes and how do we read it in a way where it can speak to us today also? And I think the way to do that, again, is to boil this parable down to its fundamental elements and to ask if any of those elements can apply to some of our own circumstances. And I think it can. For if you notice here, the fundamental problem or the erroneous essence, if I can use that phrase, of the people in Christ's day, namely the religious leadership who he is encountering here, And the problem that led them to reject the prophets who had come in line prior to Christ's arrival, it was ultimately a failure for the people to understand their reality and to understand their role. 
They misunderstood their reality around them, and they misunderstood their role. Think about that for a second. If you were to go back and survey the, the history of the prophets in the Old Testament, the message of the prophets was always consistent. The message was that Israel, or the people of God, were such because of God's grace that they were called by his name, that he put his affections upon them, that they were born of his grace. That was their reality. That was how, if you think about it, Abram was originally called. That was how they were led from Egypt. That was how they were given their land and their nation and their identity. That was the reality, and it's the reality of God's grace, of his electing and his choosing and his, his setting of undeserved, really, affections upon them purely for his, his glory and for his providential purposes. But what happened over time was that that which was gifted by grace was eventually thought of, isn't this true, as being earned by merit, as being achieved or or earned or secured by merit. So that what was a gift or a privilege became a possession that was sort of hoarded. God doesn't, or rather, we, we don't serve God, but what happens? God serves us. Dependence was replaced by Decadence. Think of how that spirals out of control for the people throughout the Old Testament. Humility is replaced by hubris. Relationship. Again, you will be my people. I have called you by name. I will put my name and my affections upon you. What became, or what started as relationship, devolved and was replaced by religion. Who they were became increasingly self-focused and not God-focused. And so any prophet who came along and presented this case before them, remember, uh, prophets really are in a sense like spiritual attorneys. (laughs) You know, God sends them to indict his people, so to speak. And as the case is made before the people, the prophets are silenced. Any call to return to their first love, to return to their roots, to return in humble repentance to God they had pushed aside again, was silenced. You see, the people forgot the reality around them. They misunderstood their reality. But the same thing also happened with their role. Think about it. The reality, again, was that they were people called by his name, born of grace, and their role was to shine that grace to a watching world, to be light in the darkness to be a nation and kingdom of priests that would mediate the grace and presence of God to the rest of the the wider world, to be a city on a hill. Think of the prophetic texts that speak of the nations streaming in to Zion. Again, this idea of God's presence centering itself in Israel, but then overflowing in mercy and mission to the wider world. I've joked that, you know, you've heard the cliche statement, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? 
Well, what happens redemptively in Israel was never supposed to stay there, but to go forth from there again to the wider world. And yet that too was forgotten. That too was lost sight of. The people of God turned ever inward. They turned idolatrous even. And again, they lost sight of who they were in God's eyes. And they lost sight of who they were to be for others. And then again, what happens? The prophets come to challenge this with their familiar call to repentance, with their call to recovery of this primary love and a primary truth, and yet then they were silenced. And so what does God do? Well, the story here, in, again, parabolic form, tells us that the owner of the vineyard then would send one more messenger, so to speak. One more person. He would send forth his son. He would up the ante, if you will, and send someone that surely they will listen to. Send someone with the authority and the resume and the credentials to be listened to. If only they had ears to hear and eyes to see. Dan Carlin is uh, this masterful, masterful storyteller, uh, masterful podcaster. In fact, he has this series called Hardcore History, which some of you may or may not be familiar with. There are these long-form uh, podcasts which go into incredible depth and research, and they're, they're very, very compelling. He has a number uh, of them on World War uh, I and II, and one particularly on the Pacific theater uh, that focuses on uh, the role of Japan and, and the, uh, the, emperor, uh, the empire of Japan. And it goes through all these, just all the different um, developments and, and, and uh, machinations of that nation from uh, you know, pre-industrial to then industrial uh, powerhouse. And again, all of these things. But on one of his episodes uh, in a series called Supernova in the East, he tells the fascinating, fascinating story, which you may have heard before, of a man named Hiro Anoda. Hiro Anoda. And he was a soldier who was part of a unit uh, that was sent to the Philippines toward the latter half of World War II. In 1944, he was sent to the Philippine Islands during the height, if you know, of the Pacific Theater, which raged then. And his unit was put on mission to disrupt any and all allied activities that were happening in that region, and particularly happening on the Philippine Islands. And that, that, that itself is not remarkable. That happened all in that theater, all the different islands. Just that, that, that's a very common mission. But what was remarkable, if you know the story, is that this young soldier in his 20s, Hiro Onoda, was sent in 1944 to the Philippine Islands. Well, as you know, the war ended a year later in 1945, but Onoda doesn't himself officially surrender until his commanding officer, who's flown there on a government plane, flown there on the behest, behest of the Japanese government, and meets Anoda in a jungle clearing, <clears throat> who at that time still has a working rifle, 
still has hundreds of rounds of ammunition, still is well stocked with hand grenades and has his original sword as a Japanese soldier, and finally surrenders on March 9th, 1974. 1974. Sent in 1944, but doesn't surrender until 1974. He had personally still been fighting, refusing to surrender, refusing to believe in defeat. Refusing to believe such until he heard it from the one in charge. One that he would trust. One who had the credentials to tell him something so shocking of defeat. You see, they had sent previous messengers, even in that story. Family members had come to visit him, to implore him to come out of his, his hiding. He was actually still attacking villages and, and, and wounding and hurting, killing people even over the course of 30 years. They sent family members and they sent other dignitaries. They brought newspapers before this man. They would lay them in the cave to read newspapers, to see the headlines, to see publications. He didn't believe any of it because of what he had been told. You know, the, the podcast is about just the, the amazing culture of, that, you know, that, that was built by the Japanese Empire, their dedication, their zeal, right? He didn't believe any of it until someone would come who he trusted, the one who commissioned him to begin with, the one who sent him there to begin with, his commanding officer, only when he showed up 30 years later, finally, the man was a bookseller back in Japan by then in civilian life. He came 30 years later and finally Onoda heard it, believed, and he laid down his weapons. You see, something similar is at work here in the parable that Jesus tells us. Jesus comes from high command. Jesus comes as God's word itself, not merely a prophet, not merely a messenger, but as the incarnate word, the living God. And even when his teaching rises above all before him, and his miraculous signs rise above every prophet before him, unlike Hiro Onoda, who finally heard from his commanding officer and conceded, recognized his, his, his misjudgment, if you will, Jesus is faced with the realities here of what make this parable so shocking, which is the religious leadership of his day reject him. They won't listen. They won't hear it. And yet, we know that wasn't true of everybody, right? But there were some, of course, in that day who did hear him who did hear him and in doing so receive him and became sons of God, as we're told later in the New Testament. The right to become children of God. Think of his disciples. Think of Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee and yet recognizes the truth of the one who has come, the commanding officer, the vineyard owner's son who has come. And of course, that's also true of us today. That we have heard, we have believed that we as Christians are those who have received him and who recognize him as Lord and Savior and Messiah. But what happens then beyond that? You see, Jesus here is indicting the system or the institution, if you will, which had rejected him. It was the nation. It was the temple. It was the religious establishment. And I wonder, again, if the connection we can make into our own day and life, the application that we can draw, is can we not see this then as caution to us too, as Christians, institutionally? 
How can this challenge us as the church, if you will, as the capital C church? We have come and recognized Christ as Lord and Savior and as Messiah. We recognize the vineyard owner's son who has come down to call us to accounts. But can we not see this as a word of caution to the greater institution, if you will, of of which we are a part? The trap that Jesus identifies here in his parable of forgetting our reality and of forgetting our role, and in so doing then, forgetting the beauty of the gospel. For remember that the church today, that the new covenant that God has inaugurated in Christ, that the church today is the new Israel of God, and so our reality is the same, if you will. Anything we have is solely because of his calling and his grace, But can we not at times uh, deceive ourselves into thinking that it's by our strength? It's by the work of our hands. It's by our merit that we built this, that we achieved this, that, that yes, God may have started things, but thank you, God, we'll take it from here. Isn't that the tendency sometimes of our hearts? Church becomes our possession. Church becomes our purview. This is my pew. Nobody else can sit there. This is the way we always did things. This is my church, right? We have enough pews to go around, can't you tell? So you're welcome to have your own pew, okay? But uh, but you, you get the idea. It becomes our possession. It becomes our purview. It's possible once we're called and comfortable inside the church to begin to think we're not really that needy or that grace dependent. Think about when Israel finally gets to promised land and God tells them, you're gonna live in houses you didn't build. You're gonna drink from wells you didn't dig. You're gonna enjoy the, the, the fruit of vineyards that you didn't plant. And you're gonna forget about me. No, no, we'll never do that, Lord. They covenant before him. You will forget about me. He knew it and yet it still happens. Thanks be to God, he still loves and redeems. But the same, I think, can be true for us sometimes in church. We begin to believe maybe we're not really so bad after all. We forget what originally brought us here. We forget our dependence on grace. We trust our own strength, our own ability. Or think of how national Israel in the Old Testament wanted to increasingly look like the world around her no longer satisfied with being God's chosen possession. She wanted to fashion herself more in the image of the world, of the nations around her. And we know that began with her desire to have a king. God's favor was no longer what mattered most. It was the favor of the culture. And it's not hard to see how the church and how we as Christians can fall into the same trap. Not satisfied any longer with being the bride of Christ, We want to also catch the eye of the world. Isn't that possible sometimes for us? And we forget, ironically, that what caught the eye of our Savior wasn't our beauty. It wasn't our put-togetherness. What caught the eye of our Savior was our sin, was our mess, was our need for redemption, our ashes of unrighteousness, that his salvation makes beautiful. 
Well, again, sometimes we forget that and the shine wears off. And so we fashion ourselves more and more like the world. And we look less and less like the Savior who loved us, who redeemed us. Or what about the role of the church? Well, our role, if you think about it, is also the same as the people of God in the Old Testament. To be a light to the nations. That what God has blessed us with and allowed us to possess was never supposed to be just for us. That we would hoard it. That we would create some sort of country club with exclusive membership for only the healthy and the wealthy and the wise. But we were called to go forth. That we were blessed in order to be a blessing. That the light which pierced our darkness would pierce the darkness of others also would radiate. But again, as the church, sometimes we too often close our doors Do we not? We want to close our doors to the outsiders, to our communities, from those around us, forgetting that we were placed here for that very reason, to go forth and to make all things new. You notice in both instances, again, whether we lose sight of our reality or our role, the connective idea there is a lost sight of grace a lost sight of grace, thinking we don't need it, and in doing so, we stop sharing it. We stop looking outside ourselves, we stop opening our doors, we forget that one first reached down and out to us, and so we don't reach any longer out to others. How can that challenge us here? How can that challenge us as individuals? And how can it challenge us again as a church? Where have we forgotten those things or lost sight of those things? Well, the hope and the encouragement as we draw to a close is that whatever the case may be, the instruction that Jesus gives us here is to refocus where? To refocus on the cornerstone. Did you notice that? That he ends his story with a quotation from the Psalms and pointing them to this idea of the cornerstone. The cornerstone here can either be the first stone from which all other stones are fashioned in a foundation and oriented, or it can often be what's called a capstone, which is that final stone of completion which perfectly locks everything together in this symmetry and seals it together. I see David nodding his head, a structural engineer there nodding his head, right? This idea here of a cornerstone And yet, yet in either image, you see Christ's point driven home. That the true believer, the true follower, the true tenant in his vineyard, who becomes an heir, who becomes a co-owner, a son or a daughter, is the one who begins and ends with Christ in mind. The alpha cornerstone and the omega the capstone that he is the solid rock upon which our salvation is founded that he is the solid rock that we long for in a world that is anything but a world of shifting sand and yet he is also that to which everything in our lives which we strive to build is ultimately aimed towards and purposed for 
It's this idea of what John Piper, pastor and author, calls in his devotional a Godward life. A life that is aimed, again, towards the purposes and the plans of God. In fact, if you notice, in somewhat cryptic fashion, as, that, as the passage closes in verse 18, Jesus provides us with this striking image of the cornerstone, which in the end, if you notice, will really sort out all things. It will, it will reveal one's true self. For if you notice, the one who falls upon the cornerstone. In other words, the one who falls upon Jesus and who has done so in humble desperation. It's this image here of one who is broken, really. That they are dashed to pieces, if you will. Yet only to find themselves forgiven. Remade, reborn, made whole, if you will, put back together, so to speak, but made whole by their maker who first fashioned them and who now, through Christ, the cornerstone, redeems them. We are broken upon Christ only then to be remade into our true self, to be made who we really are. And yet the one who never comes in humble desperation but like the tenants in this passage, rejects every offer from the landowner when finally rejecting the sun, when finally rejecting the cornerstone, finds in the end he is no longer available to cast himself upon. But what happens instead? The weight of that cornerstone, the weight of his judgment and wrath like an immovable boulder are cast upon him or her. It's a striking contrast, this cryptic but profound contrast which Christ paints for us there at the end of this passage. And the question for all of us is which are we? Which are we in those two pictures that are painted? The scribes and the chief priests and the teachers of the law who come to Jesus in Luke 20, though persistent like Hero Onoda, prove themselves to ultimately be misguided. They don't hear him. They don't see him. For Jesus had come. The son of the father, the vineyard owner, had come. The victory had been won. Salvation would be secured. The war was over. And here, those who heard Jesus, like Hero Onoda in that story, those who heard Jesus were invited to enjoy the fruits of his labor, to enjoy the chalice of God's mercy, the vintage of his grace. If only they would lay the weapons of their self-righteousness down. And the same is true for us. And the same is true for all who hear him today. May we lay the weapons of our self-righteousness down. And may we continue to cling to the one, namely Jesus, who himself, as we're told in Revelation 19, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And he, as the son, he, as the heir to the vineyard, drank the cup of God's wrath for us, that we, might receive and drink the cup of his blessing. Let's pray together.
our Father and God. We are thankful for what you have done. We are thankful that you have come into your vineyard and you have come and redeemed those who would hear. You would come and do so through the work of the Son that again we might enjoy the chalice of your grace, that we might drink deeply of forgiveness and be with you forever. Father, would you help us to remember the reality of your grace and in doing so, remember the role you've called us to, to always fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to do what we can where you've placed us, to take the knowledge of him to others, that those who are welcomed in the eternal vineyard of God might grow, that we might look around in the new heavens and new earth and enjoy the fellowship of that banquet where all who know you by faith are gathered in and enjoy your presence forever. Lord, would you see fit, we pray, to use us to expand the number of seats at your table, those who have laid the weapons of their self-righteousness down and accepted what Christ has done. So bless us, we pray in his name. Amen.